0: Welcome. All right. No, welcome
1: to... we. Wel- welcome. No, welcome no. to... No, we're
0: recording. Go ahead. Welcome to... I'd buy that for a dollar. Wait, no, stop. Welcome to... Yeah, right, no. Welcome to... All right, we are actually... Welcome there. to... Welcome to... Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered.
1: I can't tell if you're asking me a question or actually saying that.
2: Welcome to is I'd this, buy that. this
0: is what we're doing though, right? Like I'm, I'm at the right I, place? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And are you guys my regular co-hosts? Yeah. Would one of you happen to be uh, proto potato farmer, Jeremy Ruggles? That's me. Okay. So then... I'm guessing that you are a vintage MySpace profile trader, Peter Cook? Indeed I am. Well, then that would make me Sean Hartman, (laughs) y'all. We made it. We're here.
1: That was a strange intro. Thank you.
0: (laughs) All right. We're going to talk about this record called Out of Control by the Brothers Johnson. It came out in 1984. And let's hear the first track right now before we get any farther into this. The song is called You Keep Me Coming Back. Jeremiah, my co-host Peter and I were discussing beforehand whether we thought you were going to like this record or not. You just presumed I didn't bother listening
1: to it beforehand?
0: Well, I no, I I had not heard your reaction to it, (laughs) so it's possible you listened to it and I still don't know whether you like it or not. I didn't get a chance to listen to it though. I mean, I would say that of the three of us, you're probably the most musically narrow-minded on this podcast. Harsh toke.
2: Whoa, I didn't know we were going there. I mean, Peter,
0: you would agree with me. Facts are just the facts, right?
2: (laughs) Well, I don't know the. I don't know if I want to be just just pile on here. (laughs) Just agree with me. As a
1: psychologist, (laughs) I will point out you didn't say the word "no"
2: (laughs) anywhere. Well, you are the 10cc hater.
0: Exactly. You have a pretty poor track record being a team player. (laughs) just like one album. (laughs) Wow. So anyway, what do you think about this album so far? Because you've already admitted you didn't listen to it before. So half a track in. What are your initial initial reactions? I felt it was kind of generic.
1: I'm not going to lie. Exactly. It's uh, the voices were pleasant
0: to hear. Mm hmm. The songs were... There was one song. We just heard one song.
1: That's true. I didn't even hear all yeah. of it either. Were you even paying attention? I saw
0: you had your phone out yeah, while I listened some, to
1: that. Okay. I had some good changes to it. Yeah. I personally kind of like 80s. I'm doing air quotes sounding production. Uh, it was. I don't feel like it was necessarily fully realized. So I really liked digging into people who really leaned into that 80s production so i enjoyed that aspect of it i i guess why i'm feeling like it was generic is more i think we've kind of hit on this before about Mm -hmm. soul music how they're like songs of love and heartbreak that all could be interchangeably lyrically speaking i
2: think we talked about that on a patreon exclusive episode though oh
0: but, so uh, we, we, we want to reiterate this? We, we might have touched on it in other episodes as well, though. But yeah, I'm probably more into the soul, funk, dance music than the other two of you. and Because a lot of the things that uh, hit it for me with music is like rhythm and texture kind of thing. So I don't mind having the more generic vocals or generic lyrics kind of thing. But that's those aren't the key elements that, Jeremy, you look for in music. So I can understand... Is not really pushing all the buttons for you.
1: Yeah, so you're kind of the most narrow-minded when it comes to uh, storytelling in songs. Yeah, or like maybe the most
0: pedestrian. Okay. Yeah, I
2: thought you were going to say pedantic.
0: <laughs> I'm too pedestrian for words like that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, Jeremy, you said that you aren't really familiar with the Brothers Johnson at all, though.
1: No, other than this. Comical cover where they are both holding guitars and there's like twelve more guitars floating all around them, presumably played by ghosts, and the windows are open, probably also done by ghosts, and there are more guitars floating (laughs) outside. Lots of guitars for really the guitar not being that prominent of an instrument. (laughs) The
0: the bass is probably the most prominent instrument throughout this whole record. Which we'll get into a little bit of that. But yeah, this, I mean, and they seem pretty stoked for how haunted this album cover is. They're, yeah,
1: they love ghosts.
0: Yeah, they're I just that much jamming right, right along these with these ghosts.
2: <laughs> well, their big song that you might know, Jeremy, is a cover of Suggy Otis's Strawberry Letter 23. Does that ring any bells? No. You might know it if you heard it. Uh, how do you feel about their version versus Suggy Otis's, Sean?
0: I think they're both great. Yeah, I do totally. too.
2: I, I would agree with that. I think, and they're unique unto themselves. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, as with most people, I heard the Brothers Johnson version well before the Suggy Otis version. Yeah. Um, but that's the one f- you hear out in the wild. Yeah, totally. And most people don't even know that that's a cover. You know, they just think, yeah. of, oh, the Brothers Johnson song. And then this like weird, more stripped down version that this other guy did before.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, that's probably why I wanted to talk about this record For people that have even a passing interest in soul music They've heard that song, maybe know the artist a little bit People of an older generation are more likely to know more about this group They haven't really stayed popular as long But uh, in the early 70s, they were one of the best-selling funk bands on the market Were they really? Yeah, their first album went platinum and they followed that with three more platinum albums in a row. I didn't know they had sold that much. Yeah, they were huge for a while. And in doing the research, I was looking for some like live concert footage and any interviews I could find. And just reading some of the YouTube comments, a lot of people talking about, like, no one talks about this band anymore. And that was the greatest bass player of my generation. Just a lot of that general kind of sentiment regarding this group. This record is not really remembered as well, even by the people that were into this band. It didn't sell very well when it came out and wasn't necessarily critically very well received either. Where was it in their catalog? Like- this is their seventh studio album. And this actually came out after the band had broken up for about three or four years. Their last album. To
1: hurt sales when you break up.
0: Yeah, nice. totally. And it wasn't a very long breakup. They broke up in 81, went to do solo careers didn't do anything terribly successful as solo artists and then this was their comeback record in 84 and it it hit the charts a little bit but didn't do a lot for him and they kind of faded after that let's go ahead and listen to another track and then we'll get into the actual history of the brothers johnson let's hear side a track three the song is called do you
2: oh yeah i remember this one I want
0: to love that you. That was funky fresh. It was super funky fresh. This is actually the first time I've listened to this album in headphones. And one of the things that drew me to this record the most was how well recorded it is and how awesome it is sonically. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of funk records from this mid-80s period got kind of weak in that regard, a little watered down. And this one hits pretty hard. Like all those synths are just real crisp. Everything is mixed really well. I, I love the way this album hits.
1: Yeah, the sound of it I really like, because the songs are not up to snuff for me.
2: (laughs) I'm never going to love this album, but I like it.
0: Cool, cool. Peter, how are you feeling so far?
2: Yeah, I really dig it. I dig the vibe. I mean, I was starting to think about 1984, kind of what was happening in other funk music, and I was thinking that that's the same year as Purple Rain. Mm -hmm. It might also be, yeah, like Shaka Khan, Prince.
0: Yeah, Shaka's I Feel For You came out the same year, actually, Yeah, 84. Yeah, like we were saying, there's at this point in funk music, a lot, if not most, or all of the funk bands that started in the 60s and 70s were honestly almost unlistenable by this point. Very few of them translated into this very synth-heavy world very well. Um, Shaka Khan was definitely one of them. Prince transitioned into everything he did really well. <laughs> he
2: kind of led the way, I feel like.
0: Yeah, Totally. And I think this this record has uh, has an unfair reputation as being a lukewarm comeback record. I see it as two guys at the top of their game, like studio pros, have worked with a crazy list of amazing musicians and they...
1: Oh, I see a list coming out. Oh,
0: there's going to be some lists. Just get ready. They self-produced this whole record. I couldn't find if anyone else did any of the drum sequencing, but I'm pretty sure it was them. They obviously played all the uh, bass and guitar and they had a keyboard player with them. But uh I think Don't forget just, all the ghosts playing guitar yeah. too. <laughs> the uncredited ghosts. Uncredited <laughs> Maybe ghosts. they're the ones doing the drums. <laughs> I'm yeah, officially
1: I, a ghost rights advocate now, just throwing that out there. I want to get ahead of the curve. Give the ghosts their royalties.
0: One. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh the only guest producer that they had on here was a guy named Leon Silvers. Does that name ring a bell to either of you boys?
2: I can't say it does. Nope.
0: He was in a band called The Silvers, who were a pretty big disco band in the 70s. He was also in a funk group called Dynasty. And throughout the 70s and 80s, he was one of the most in-demand producers and hit makers for funk artists. He worked with groups like Lakeside, just a a huge list of other people that he was working with. And he did the first two songs on this album. He co-produced and wrote those for the Brothers Johnson. So the first song we heard... And we're not going to play the second one. There'll be other song clips later on. So let's dive into the history of the Brothers Johnson a little bit. This is a this is a family project. The two main guys are George, aka Lightning Licks, on the guitar. Oh my god! I know Jeremy's a fan of nicknames, so and then we got Lewis Thunder Thumbs on the bass.
2: <laughs> Thunder Thumbs. <laughs>
0: And I, I will like I will that say one, that Thunder Thumbs is was a real popular nickname because again I saw that a ton on the YouTube. That's Thunder not just and some. Lightning. Yeah, that's not you, just you, some like uh, discogs alias that that didn't wasn't even real. People called him Thunder Thumbs.
2: Uh, well, you, so you dared to search Thunder Thumbs on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> oh
1: lord, that's a NSFW search right there.
0: <laughs> Um, so the group started at a very young age in the late sixties. Uh, the interview I was watching with George, so he started playing guitar at about the age of four. His two brothers started playing instruments as well. And initially their older brother, Tommy was playing drums. I I don't really know what happened to Tommy after that, but he was never recording with them throughout their actual career. I don't know where he went in life. And then they also had their cousin, Alex Weir on guitar initially, who went on to play with a band called The Talking Heads. (laughs) And he is the guitar player on their uh, Stop Making Sense movie. Okay, wow. Yep, With Bernie Worrell. Exactly. (laughs) So they started recording as a, or they started playing as a band called The Johnson 3 Plus One. That was in the late 60s when they were still in school. And they actually won a Battle of the Band competition, and as part of what they won, they got to cut a single produced by Bobby Womack. And their career just kept going from there. Wow. And like the single was a, a minor regional hit for them. And then they eventually were backing band and studio musicians working with Bobby on more tracks. They were Billy Preston's backing band for a while. They did a record with Bill Withers. They were doing work with Stevie Wonder. This is all before they started making their own albums. They were just like very quickly became in demand session musicians, especially the, you know, the guitar and bass playing. Their big break came when they were working in the studio with Stevie Wonder and a guy by the name of Quincy Jones was doing some recording in that same studio, heard them playing and hired them to be part of the backing band on his 1975 album, Mellow Madness. Quincy, that's
1: the guy you were going to bring an album from, right? Yes. My my
0: initial pick for this session (laughs) was Quincy Jones' album, The Dude and then I realized I don't actually own that record. I just listened to it a million times because when I was working at the store, we always had like a minimum of 10 copies laying around and you could just play it whenever you wanted.
2: (laughs) Please tell me that uh, when you were bedazzling records that you made a copy of the album with Jeff Bridges on the cover.
0: (laughs) I wish. We'll we'll have to do that whenever I actually track down my own copy now. (laughs) Look out in the future for that. That's
1: I'm going to blame that on why I didn't listen to this.
0: <laughs> did you listen to the dude? Yeah, he started listening to the dude. I did and was just actually. Like, oh, no, this is not for me. Yeah, <laughs> was... Oh, is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, that is accurate. It could, it's a little bit of a silly album, but it's it's funky as hell. Yeah, I don't, Seems I don't do silly, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so in return, Quincy produced their first record in 1976 called Look Out for Number One. and That had Strawberry Litter 23 on it. And they're pretty much instant funk superstars from there. Like I said, four platinum albums in a row. We're a funk group that's, I mean, for any group, that's impressive. And they, they transitioned through a few different sounds there. They were a little bit more raw funk on the first album. They had some pr- really good success making more disco-themed music later on that I think is still really good compared to a lot of their, their disco contemporaries. I think they transitioned really well into the full-on like electro-boogie-funk sound that we got going on here uh let's go ahead and hear another track how about uh side a track five i came here to party love that title Mm mm-hmm
2: Who would win in a fight between "I came here to party" and "My girl wants to party all the time"?
0: What? <laughs> what are What are the terms of this fight? Are we just like you can play it for an audience and see which one see, gets the loudest clapping, or uh, well,
2: which gets the most people get down to the most?
0: Okay, which one would hit the dance floor the most? Yeah, yeah. prison Again, rules, that- or <laughs> are we doing clean fight? <laughs> and again that just depends on like where you're playing the songs because you know in a town like this just whichever one's the bigger hit's gonna get the more people dancing
2: i think that the other one's the more novelty song yeah true. i have
0: played that at dance parties and and weddings and people like it Whereas, <laughs> yeah i don't know if i've ever played a song off this at a dance party i do have one coming up in a few days and i'm fully intending on playing a track off this and fully expecting it to bomb you know, yeah you like, don't think <laughs> don't recognize this time to go order a drink. <laughs> it's funky enough. people should dance to it, and maybe they will. We'll see. We'll find out word, yeah, with you talking about similarities with Prince, I was thinking about it more when we were listening to that last song. yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense, especially with how rhythm focused Prince really was. Mm-hmm. It's been said that you know a lot's been said about how Prince was great at guitar solos and could shred better mm-hmm. than people give him credit for, but I think Prince is arguably one of the most brilliant rhythm guitar players of all time as well. And I think that really showed in a lot of his songwriting and arrangement. And I think that's something else that the Brothers Johnson are really strong with. Especially if you listen to the vocals on here, the vocals are not like a powerful element and they're not necessarily even mixed as high in the mix as a lot of other funk music is. I was going to comment on that,
2: that it almost seems subdued. Yeah. And his
0: delivery is extremely rhythmic. It's definitely weaving in and out with the the bass and the elements of here, it's just it's like another rhythm instrument mixed in there.
1: I'm pretty sure you'd have to be truly heartless to not move when that's playing. <laughs> like, the call out. <laughs> yeah, even just you know, if you got a little bit of emotion left in you somewhere, it'll get you wiggling.
0: All right. Well, we're gonna find out. I'm gonna test it in real time. See how many heartless bastards are out there. <laughs> I was with that one, I was kind of hearing
2: with the, what we talked about with the Bohannon episode and his music is it seemed like they were kind of riding on a pretty steady dynamic there versus like, I feel like with Prince, he did really kind of play things up and down a lot more uh, Mm -hmm. as far, you know, as far as the dynamics in the song, I feel like that was kind of running, uh, that song we just listened to is running a little on a steady groove.
0: Yeah. This album does not challenge in any way. That's not going places you don't expect. It doesn't have crazy left turns musically. It is just a extremely well made dance record. Mm-hmm. You know, it is there to keep the party going the whole time, and just have that groove locked in. There's, you know, changes from the chorus and different elements, but the the groove is there and it's solid the whole time.
2: And the thing that we will that we are editing out of uh, our preview of this album is, you there are a couple schmaltzy cheesy ballads. Yes,
0: that... <laughs> <laughs> this is not a perfect record from where I'm sitting. Other people might like every track on it, and hell yeah. But this is, I think, one of the quintessential things that you get into when you start collecting funk music, is it is kind of rare to have a perfect funk record. (laughs) Because at the time, there's certain things that just had to be on these records, and I just am not into a lot of it, and namely the really cheesy adult contemporary ballads that Mm -hmm. just had it just sold well with a select market and everybody had to keep that market satisfied and it's not for me and I think in general there's not really that market looking for that kind of stuff is in the same way anymore so yeah there's at least two tracks on here that I straight up don't like and like another one or two that I think are just okay but those songs in here that are good I think are awesome and some of my favorite funk records are exactly like that
1: yeah I think funk was still fairly I mean it's on the scope of music a fairly new genre and at this time was going into a whole new realm of funk music and when you're creating a whole new thing that hasn't been done before it's going to be hit and miss like the perfect albums in my mind are the ones that sort of take something that's already been fleshed out and they make a solid whole piece built on like what others have experimented before. If that makes sense. Maybe that makes sense.
0: Honestly, I'm probably going to disagree with you on on that perspective a little bit. I I think at this point, funk in any incarnation was not new for the players or the listeners. I just think that the intention of it was very similar to how a straight up pop record is made. Like not a lot of the artists were in it to make, huge like personal artistic statements it was like trying to fill the dance floor and trying to make sure their audience was getting what they wanted out of it kind of thing that's what a lot of those people were doing which I mean you could argue whether that's as valid of an artistic medium as something else I don't know but uh yeah I I think they just they knew what the audience wanted and that's what they're making for the most part okay
1: I appreciate that because I'm obviously a noob in the realms of funk and any soul that's not like 60s soul (laughs) i didn't really get into the 70s and 80s stuff Mm -hmm. and uh r&b all that stuff i'm i'm not as nearly as well versed as either of you so
2: just uh kind of touching back on what you were saying about the need for those the more adult contemporary type songs i think When I think of Prince, I think that is a testament to his genius is that I think he worked some of those songs in seamlessly. Like I don't usually skip tracks on a Prince record. Definitely. Like he somehow made even the baby making music sound good.
0: Yeah. And a lot of times was some kind of a statement musically or lyrically. Yeah. I will not argue that this record is on like Prince genius level, but (laughs) I think it's funky as hell. (laughs) I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of the players on it, and as I mentioned, they went solo in about 1981, 1982 area. One of the things that Lewis, the bass player, did was worked a lot more with Quincy Jones, and is all over a couple albums by Michael Jackson that yeah. came out during that time period. So you'd mention hearing some PYT, some PYT, some some thriller elements in here. That would be because the bass player just got done recording those albums. <laughs> um, Makes sense. He also did some work with a guy named Steve Arrington. Are you familiar with him? Nope.
2: I I can't say I am. I'm trying to think if it rings a bell, but
0: he was a again kind of forgotten at this point, but was a very well loved funk singer at the time. He was in the group Slave, and then yeah. went solo. Wow. And okay, and then had some uh, some pretty successful. Uh, early mid 80s records and then uh, Dame Funk did a collaboration record with him a few years ago that was oh. really really good the other main player on this record is a guy named David Hawk Walensky often credited as just Hawk on the back of the album because that's how people knew him I was not familiar with this guy and looked him up he's got a pretty colorful history he started in a group called Shadows of Night
2: oh yeah the 60s band yeah yeah Did they do a cover of Gloria? Yes. Okay.
0: Yep. And then after that, he went into a band called the Bangor Flying Circus, who were Chicago-based, but obviously named after the Michigan City. Right. Because I think one or two of the guys were from Bangor.
1: Far out. Really?
0: Yep. And then after that, he was in a band called Madura that had like one or two records, not as popular as the other ones. And then he joined a band called Rufus, which became Rufus and Shaka Khan. Ah. Yep. Uh, he did wow. a lot of records with them, and then as I mentioned, Shaka Khan's I Feel For You also came out in 1984, mm-hmm. same year as this record. So he was doing some work on that and on this record pretty much at the same time. Shaka Khan? Yep. It was Hawk. Can you I like derail your timeline and ask like yeah, what yeah. happened to these guys? Brothers Johnson? Yeah. Uh, they did one more record together in, I believe, 1988 that I have not listened to. And I think at that point, they were limiting how much work they were doing a little bit because they were making plenty of money off royalties. They performed together here and there, performed with different projects, still did a lot of studio and production work over the years. And uh, Lewis passed away just a few years ago. I believe George is still performing and working at you know whatever pace he wants to at this point. Let's go ahead and play another clip, and then we'll talk about some uh, record-collecting aspects anecdotes. I want to hear track one from Side B. It's the title track, Out of Control, and this is the only one written and co-produced by Hawk who we were just talking about. Hawk. Hawk. Hawk.
1: Karate Kid, or Rocky for that matter, would have been a better movie with that song in it.
2: (laughs) You're saying that's better than Joe Esposito, You're the Best Around?
1: I mean, you could just additionally
0: add it in somewhere, somewhere
2: some montage, and it would have been better. No, I I can agree with that.
0: I was playing tracks of this record earlier today with my daughter Eloise around, and her reaction was, this sounds exactly like the theme music from Pokemon.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Pokemon was better because it sounded just like this.
0: <laughs> I'd almost convince her to come on here and, you know, talk about this. So like yeah. We'll have her
1: guest on an episode at some point.
0: Yeah, but she was saying, you know, kids would listen to this podcast and this album if they knew it sounded like Pokemon music. And that's the message we need to get out there. I wonder, being of a certain age, if
1: Pokemon, is that actually still cool with the kids or is it just oh, it's huge. old people? Having nostalgia and playing it on our cell phones or whatever. I think
0: it'll never die.
2: It'll I think it's ingrained. Die. I think it's ingrained in culture. Wow.
0: I think enough money has been spent on marketing to keep that alive to this day. <laughs> <Okay>.
2: <laughs> yeah, I kind of missed Pokemon the first time around. I was too old when it came out. Were you guys of the, more of that age? Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. It was, yeah, everywhere. I was like 18 when it came out, so. <laughs> You're
1: like, nah. <laughs>
0: Also, Jeremy, I literally went to the Nintendo store in Times Square with you, and half of that store was Pokemon. Oh, that's true. Yeah.
1: That place sucked. I was not <laughs> happy to be there. I won't name who made us go, but it wasn't me
0: or Sean. I, I kind of enjoyed it. I... We ate hot dogs together in Times Square. It was fun. Yeah.
1: That was interesting in, in an insane kind of way, but... <laughs> yeah. But, the oh, Nintendo the Nintendo store, store specifically was not, your, was not
0: your bag. <laughs> Not my bag at all. (laughs) Is that something that the kids are are into, saying not my bag? Yes. (laughs) Not my chair,
2: not my problem.
1: No, they probably aren't into saying not my bag anymore because people don't get busted for drugs anymore because it's legal and the kids will never understand what it means to hide your drugs. They're just going to be walking around on the streets, toking the marijuanas.
2: They won't won't be doing that anymore because it's not any fun.
1: Oh, yeah. It won't be cool. though.
2: Our weird old dads. (laughs) Didn't have anything better
0: to do back then. You guys want to talk about this record again? Music? Which one were we on? Ah, Brothers Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So, let's talk about record collecting. You guys collect records?
1: Actually, let's talk about Nintendo Store.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think, I feel... They are the sponsors of this episode. They need their due.
2: I think I uh, replaced my love of Nintendo with record collecting.
0: Okay.
1: Exactly. It's respectable. No, I feel like this is tying in. I've had this like idea kind of formulating in my head. We kind of crossed some like number milestones with this podcast and it has been more successful than any music thing I've ever done. <laughs> So, and it's
0: not even that successful yet.
1: <laughs> it's not that
0: successful yet, if that puts it in perspective. But people in Morocco are listening to us. But people, yeah, like actually all fans. over the world. Yeah.
2: It's crazy. Once um, you're recognized in Morocco, you're legit. That's what happened with the United States in 1777.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, wait. Historian. Wrong peer. meeting. Anyways, <laughs> that's got me like mulling on what is sort of the important meaningful message to me and what kind of politics can I inject into the podcast behind your guys's back but I'm now I'm saying it right here in front of you and the jig is up and the jig is up I'm worried about where this is going (laughs) well kind of the I think the takeaway for me is the sort of new materialism that is anti-materialism in a sense because we're grabbing real physical things that have entirely lost value in the capitalist sense but they still hold value in an artistic sense And but there's that strange contradiction of how we think of materialism as being tied to economic activity or whatever And this sort of stands as a bounce back
0: towards materialism,
1: but is sort of anti-capitalist in nature. Yeah. Is that making sense? I would
0: definitely agree with that. The materialism aspect of record collecting, and I think a lot of the, the fad element of record collecting is buying albums because it's cool, because it's a thing other people are doing, or also to buy albums that are going to make your friends think you're cool for having them. And very few of the records we've talked about on this podcast are that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is not the thing. It's not gonna be on BuzzFeed's list of top twenty records that every person should have and things like that. You know, it's it's not the thing. You're not gonna that, be in Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. Urban Outfitters does not have this in their recommended section.
2: Hey, my Janice Ian album was on omespeaker.com as <laughs> the number one
0: recommended
2: album for speakers. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's pretty exclusive and esoteric right there.
0: Right. But we're talking about a lot of times albums that were completely fully backed by the capitalist machine Mm -hmm. at one point, which is why there's so many of them. And now they're all in the pile of semi forgotten history. And what we're doing is digging back through that and reevaluating it under a new lens and saying like, is there actual real artistic merit to this thing that was, you know, lavished in wealth in the system at one point and now is just left out to dry? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And is now being sold outside of that capitalist system. Sure. You know, amongst collectors, sellers. Mm-hmm. That could be a whole other debate, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and if you're even. buying
0: a used copy of this, you almost have to be supporting a locally owned business or individual. Yeah, yeah.
1: there's not enough money for <laughs> it to be worth it to anyone else to bother putting out a $2 album.
0: Mm-hmm absolutely
2: i I do think uh, that sometimes the music industry is compensating for lack of sales with they've jumped on the bandwagon by selling these reissues of, of stuff at, at high costs mm-hmm. I, I think that's where some of the money in the music industry is being made now absolutely
0: yeah and I think your jaiceian record has probably been reissued a handful of times but a lot of the other stuff we're talking about I don't know if it's really gotten the the reissue treatment and certainly not by major labels I mean and even the Janice Ian that, I mean, I, I haven't looked, but there's probably some audio file reissues and maybe not a whole lot of other major label. Let's print another few million of this Janice Ian record. <laughs> That's what the kids are knocking down doors for. <laughs> it did to... sell like 2 million in its day. but Yeah. Its day has long passed. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about another aspect of record collecting. The Brothers Johnson in particular have, uh, have a kind of special place in my heart as in the In the world of getting into soul music. I was kind of, I loved the moment that you
2: just decided, I don't know anything about soul music. Yeah,
0: absolutely. (laughs) I need to
2: get into this. The
0: Brothers Johnson were kind of a defining factor in that for me. Growing up in Michigan, I've always been obviously very aware of Motown and knew that I love 60s soul music. When it comes on the radio or it comes across my path, it's awesome. I love all this stuff. And for the longest time, I was of the opinion that soul music was pretty much terrible after like 1973, Mm -hmm. you know? And when I first started working at the record store, I was pretty much of that opinion as well. This would have been about 2008, 2009. And when I first started working at the record store, it was not the greatest record store. There was a lot of junk in there, a lot of stuff that just needed to be sorted through and either thrown away or priced down. And I was putting a lot of work into that. And I remember there was a period where I was putting a lot of work specifically into our soul section and trying to get rid of these records that weren't selling and had no value and were overpriced. And I remember specifically when my boss, Steve, was down there, who will probably have guests on this podcast at some point, I pulled out. Brothers Johnson's first record, and was like, Yeah, for example, this record, no one wants this. Why do we have this here? It looks stupid. It probably sucks. Let's get rid of the junk and just have a good soul section. And he was like, Actually, that record is awesome, and you need to listen to it. <laughs> Just because you haven't heard it or don't think you like it or it's from a certain time period doesn't mean it's not actually good music. I, I and, and even my coworker John, who was the biggest metalhead I've ever known, like we literally called him Kiss John. who mm-hmm. just listened to death metal and John Kiss Rios. records. Yeah, John Rios all the time. Was actually like, no, I even like that record. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> I've just gotten very denied by these two people whose opinion I deeply respect in music. And I listened to the Brothers Johnson later that day and was like, oh, shit. Yeah. I was so wrong. I need to figure out what was going on in the 70s and maybe even the 80s with funk music. And that was kind of when I decided, I actually don't know shit about soul music. I kind of just thought I did because I've heard a bunch of soul songs and I don't know anything. So then I the college radio station I was doing a show at and wider. I just switched my format to an all soul show. Well, there's no other better way to get educated on a subject than to force myself to play at least two hours of it every week. Yeah. And yeah, I just spent a ton of time getting familiar with soul music. And the more I listened the more I became, I guess, accepting of different styles and like that eighties and seventies heavy production that initially was turning me off. And, uh, I bought, Just, you know, every Brothers Johnson record I found for a while, they only got a few. And this one I bought, and I don't know if I actually listened to it when I bought it, as with many other records that I've purchased. you start having a record collection in the thousands, you can't really listen to all of it anymore. And I've been recently going back through my collection and listening to stuff again that I haven't played in years to see if I needed to still keep it. And I put this record on and was just instantly like blown away at how good it was and how funky and well-produced it was for being a very late-period record from this band that had their heyday in the mid-'70s.
2: Since you mentioned Steve, I recall the project that we discussed on the first episode of this podcast, and we've touched on a couple times since then, where about five years ago that you and I started going through the bins at Corner Record Trap Kalamazoo, we, when we started finding that there was a lot of good stuff in there, you said, You know what? I think a lot of this stuff is actually stuff that Steve picked up when we were at a record expo, and I just was, didn't know what any of it was. And he said, Yeah, you you wouldn't know what it is because you're young, but it's really good. <laughs>
0: and, you're- well, and I think he was even like, No one's going to know what this stuff is, but if they listen to it, it's awesome. I said,
2: yeah, yeah. And we movie. were,
0: yeah, he bought just like a few boxes of stuff that was left over after a full weekend of people digging through the amazing collection that wider had uh, was selling off. It was like That's what it was. decades mm-hmm. of wider and Westerns record collection. People were just finding all these amazing gems because everything was cheap. And then, yeah, Steve went through and just made several boxes of basically all the kind of material that we're doing on this podcast now. And years later, a lot of it was still at the store. And as we were going through and listening to it, we we're just like, man, he was right. Yeah. About all of this. There's so much good music that is n- completely off everyone's radar at this point.
2: Yeah, I always love when I'm up at Corner Record Shop Granville and I come up with something that's like $5 or less, and he's like, great album. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's a Phil Oaks one coming up that I'm going to do soon that is (laughs) Steve-approved. Nice. (laughs) Awesome.
1: Well, thank you for sharing that with us, Sean. Oh, you're welcome. I just, I love it. I love it.
0: You love the record? You're into it? I like the record. You like the the concept? I'm not going to go that (laughs) far. I don't love it. You're not going to go buy the next copy? That you I see, might, you Remember? know, I might get a copy of Brothers Chance. Probably get it for a dollar if you look hard enough. Yeah, you bro- probably. probably don't even have to look that hard.
2: Honestly, the last song on mm-hmm. it—they they cover One Night in Paris. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um,
0: all right, well, let's go out with the final track on the album. It's very appropriately titled. It's called "It's All Over Now."
2: so we're good we're going out we're going out this
0: is ben i'd buy that for for a dollar for a dollar for a dollar yep i'm sean hartman i'm jeremy ruggles
2: and i'm peter cook
1: Thank you for listening to another fantastic episode of I'd buy that for a dollar. If you want to hear more of it, you can find us at I'd buy that If you want to tell us about a record or tell us about something we missed or messed up, I'd buy that podcast at gmail.com. You can, you know, interact in various ways with us on Facebook and on Instagram We appreciate you listening, and if you dig it, tell a friend or tell some weirdo at your work who likes music a little too much, share the podcast. We appreciate that more than anything. Thank you again for listening. If you also, you know, really love us and want to share with us but are too nervous to tell your friends that you're a vinyl nerd you can find us on patreon i'd buy that podcast help us pay for the various things that make this podcast possible thanks again have a wonderful rest of your day